confidence that you had everything correct and you were walking in the right direction and you had all the right understanding and then all of a sudden you step in a pothole and the pothole is the pothole of correction. <laughs> and then you go, wow, okay, I, I really didn't know. And then you think, okay, I've grown wiser. I'm going to continue to walk now. And then a couple of seasons down the road, you, you, I'm wise now. So, And you're walking correctly and then that pothole again. And then you're walking correctly in that pothole. And there eventually comes a time when we think we're just dumb. We're not wise. We don't know where we're going. So, Lord, just show me the way. And, beloved, I think that that is the ultimate end of, of what the Christian life is about on earth. Is that we give glory to Christ by resting in him completely. We give glory to God by stopping all the nonsense and the foolishness of trying to work all these things out for ourselves. Trying to be the manipulator of God's providence. Trying to figure out all the details of everything. And, 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 and then we come to this conclusion going, yes, this is where I want to stay. But we don't stay there. We weave in and out of the ditches when the center lane is clearly marked for us. We're always standing on the cliffs. We're always looking out over the world and our lives and thinking, if I had just done this, if I had just said that, if I could have just gone back, if this could have been, we all have these things. So, beloved, we're not alone. Now, there may be some of us rare birds that say, I've never thought that way. That's because you haven't stepped in a pothole yet. And chances are, if you haven't, then you're on the wrong track with some things. Now, I'm not talking about the gospel. We know the gospel. But, beloved, for anyone to suppose that if you are in Christ, that you have no doubts and you have no theological tragedies is rightly asinine. Can I say that word? It's ridiculous. And it props us up in such a way, it props that idea up in such a way that it puts a burden upon the church that is not measurable in the Bible, nor is it even tangible. It's not something that we can ever see or touch. We can't see perfection. We can't see purity. We can't see the, uh, the, the epitome of wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our purity. Christ is our obedience. Christ Jesus, by faith in Him alone, are we walking in absolute perfection before the Father? Are we loving and getting credited for being the most loving people that walk the face of the earth? All the while, we're struggling to even like one another sometimes. But yet, we get credit for being lovers. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that a dichotomy that when we sit down in our philosophical circles that it, it makes good coffee talk? It makes us seem wise. It makes us seem, you know, robust in the faith. And people that listen, they go, oh, wow, these people, I wish I had faith like that. This running is not faith. This running is just running. When my mouth speaks, it's not about my faith or the measure of my faith. It's just me talking. And so anyone can talk the game. You ever seen a movie? Do you know there is no Iron Man? You know there is no Dracula? Sorry, I know all of you are going to have to have therapy now. There's no such thing as, you know, as, as, as Jack Reacher. Uh, sorry, guys. Frank Castle doesn't exist. All those great roles that were played, all these things that we love to see on the screen. You know, Luke Skywalker, not a real person. 
These people act. These are real live individuals who hone their craft and they act out a part, so much so that some of them in their methods of preparing for a role are embedded so deeply in that role that some of them have nearly gone mad. Some of them have gone mad. Some of them have lost so much weight that they have liver damage because they wanted to feel the part and live the part. And they do a 30-second scene, and after two years, they get to watch a 60-minute movie. Well, beloved, we're all actors. There's a word for that in the Greek that we have anglicized, and it is hypocrite. Now see, hypocrite for us is somebody who's not genuine, somebody who's a shyster, somebody who's telling us to do what they're not doing. But the word literally means to put on an act. And that's what we do. That's what we're doing this morning. All of us have a little act. All of us have a little act. We act a little bit when we get up. We act a little bit when we get ready. We act a little bit when we come in. We have an act. Why? Because we're taught to do that. And I'm not saying that we're not supposed to. Beloved, we've got to do some things that we're not innately taught. I mean, no child is born with Emily Post in the back of their cerebral. If you don't know who that is, she's like the grandmother of etiquette. I was given an Emily Post book as a boy, probably seven or eight years old, and I read it. And I took it to heart. So I learned not to smack. I learned where the forks went on what side of the plate. I learned not to drink my drink during my meal, wait till I was finished eating, and then I drink. That's the things that you do. It's just rude. It's absurd. Why, but, you know, you eat, then you drink. Helps digestion. You see, well, who said? Emily Post. But we're not born with these things. We're not born to know how to speak properly. We, 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 we imbibe in our own ears without even knowing it, that which is around us, so most of us sound and speak like our families. So we're actors. We teach our children how to act. We teach our children how to behave. It's not innate. We tell them that this is required. And they may appear to do it out of instinct after several paddles or spoons or whatever it might be, tabs, leather belts. But ultimately, it's just a learned behavior. Well, beloved, when we read the Bible, why is it written? So we could learn information about Jesus, the God of glory, the King of kings, and the Lord and Savior of His people, and that we can learn how to behave. Did you know that? And when someone says, no, 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 do not teach the behaviors of the New Testament. They are not yet fallen in a pothole. You see? And we're just going to patiently wait for them to break their ankle and say, help! And we'll get them out and there'll be a little bit of wisdom, just a little sprinkle of wisdom in that moment that will carry them to the next hole, to the next hole, to the next hole, to the next hole. And beloved, I'm so sick and tired of falling in potholes. But as Paul was taught by the Holy Spirit, there's one thing that I know for sure, suffering and imprisonment awaits me. So little tongue-in-cheek, there's one thing I know for sure, suffering and potholes await me. We're going to have them. We're going to have them. And what we've done by insisting that we know what we know, and see, this is the context of 1 Timothy, right? These are these people that know what they know. Beloved, when we are there, 
We may know the facts of what we're talking about, but we do not know what we know. Except by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit does not infuse us with knowledge and understanding. It comes through trial. Some of us cognitively can, cognitively can grasp concepts that are complex. Some of us can grasp things that are simple. Some of us in our minds, we just hear something. Go, yeah, I got that. That's, uh, I see it. Yeah, no problem. And some of us struggle. Some of us fight. And there's always people on the sidelines watching us trip and fall and weave and swerve. And there's always people on the sidelines ready to give their advice. You ever been there? And as a parent, I have so much remembered those days of moms and dads and grandmas and granddads and great-grandmas. and great. See, I just, I've said that several times, but I had the benefit of knowing great-grandparents and great-uncles and aunts. And, and, I mean, you're talking about being told what to do. It never stopped. It never stopped. So as a father, I'm like, okay, when my kids get to a certain age, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to relax a little bit. I'm going to stop a little bit. And when they get married, I'm not going to do this. And you, you know, you find it. You go, Lord Jesus, help me. You see? Because we know, as parents, what our children need to be doing. We know how they ought to act and what they ought to do with their money and what they ought to do with their time. We all know how they ought to set the table and vacuum out the car. We know that we're not responsible for mowing their grass or paying their bills. That's their job. But we. Because even when we think we know, (laughs) we don't. So the point is that we've all been those know-it-alls and we are surrounded by know-it-alls and we all know it that we're know-it-alls and do we really know that yet? Have we gained the wisdom to know that we might not be know-it-alls at all? You follow? This is Dr. Seuss Day, I guess. There's hope in that. There's hope in that because the scripture gives instruction and sometimes it's harsh. Sometimes Paul is upset and he's mad. He's mad in one letter. But he's not mad with his saints. Let's just think about that for a second. Paul's mad in another letter, but he's not mad with the saints. See, the New Testament doesn't reveal a holy anger toward God's people. As a matter of fact, that's antithetical to the gospel. And according to John, it's antichrist. God is not angry with his people. Because his anger is quenched. He drunk the full cup of his justice when Jesus drank the full cup of his wrath. And so he is satisfied with his people. There is no condemnation. There is no anger. There is no frustration. God is not frustrated. God's love is not frustrated. God's grace is not frustrated. And so one of the most horrible realities that that I have continued to learn is that I am a dogmatic know-it-all sometimes. And I don't want to say that I know that. Because when I say that I know that, then I might not know that. And while I may act appropriately in front of you, oh, inside I'm a Tasmanian devil. See, some people don't like to hear that about their pastor. When I say to you that my inclined flesh is murderous, I am not pretending. I'm really being honest at that moment. I am a kick-butt-and-take-names kind of guy. And typically, 
throughout my lifetime, it's been with this mouth. I can tear someone up. My friends used to say, boy, tippings will make the devil cry. How? Because I'm just a mean person. But by the Lord's mercy, by His patience, and by the teaching that's found in the Scripture, He has taught me to not act according to my inclinations, but to act according to His teaching, not His puppetry, you see. God is not the puppet master of me. God is the Father of me. God is the Lord of me. God is the gracious and merciful King of me. And He shows me how He laid His life down for me so that I may be incited to listen to what He says about how I should lay down my life for others. And when I do, I'm thankful. And when I do, I feel close to the Lord. And when I don't, I'm guilty. And I feel far from the Lord. And then he teaches me that it doesn't matter how I feel. And it doesn't matter what I do. Because nothing can separate me from him. In Christ Jesus. When Jesus buys you with his blood. Let me, let me put that in the right perspective. When Jesus bought you with his blood. There's no, re, there's no refunds. There's no exchanges. And there are a lot of people who don't read the Scripture or don't hear the Scripture or don't understand and comprehend the Scripture, and that's all of us. We may understand certain things, and we may deal with certain theologies, and we may uh, you know, apprehend certain truths, but to really understand the Scripture means that we understand what Paul is doing when he writes this intimate, loving, kind, personal, and pleading letter to Timothy. Paul didn't sit down and pull off his pastoral frock and say, give me a pen. God's given me a message. That's what we think, though. Paul is climbing out of a pothole sometimes. And, And God puts us there. Prison, abandonment, starvation, snakes, shipwrecks. I mean, let's just put the list down for Paul. He, he, he suffered. And he would say, please, all I'm trying to do is just to share the love of God with all the world. To teach the gospel of free and sovereign grace to everybody who's willing to hear it. And who came after him? Those people who knew. Those people who knew that they knew what God was saying. Now the irony behind that is that Paul then had to continue to defend his apostolic authority. He had to continue to say, like he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. An apostle of Christ Jesus, and he's strong here, by the command of God. I had no choice. I'm not this guy that knows it all. I did know it all. Now I know nothing. I knew everything. I was brilliant. I was perfect. I walked in a manner that every Pharisee wished they could have walked in. I did it, Paul says. And then I didn't. And then I realized I wasn't. And I realized I didn't know anything. But I know what I do know. I know Christ is merciful. I know. I know. I know. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. We get in there a couple of weeks. You see how that does us? 
we who are born of God. You see what that does to us? No matter how frustrated we are, no matter, no matter how right we are, no matter how aggravated we are, when we're reminded of that truth, what comes? It's not angst. It's not destruction. It could be I as your shepherd, under-shepherd, as your pastor, as your overseer, who has this platform and you are sort of like glued to what I have to say, I could take that and really run it into an unbiblical ditch. I could make you all guilty. Then I could give you four ways of remedy. <laughs> I could give things because, I mean, you know, we're all alike. There's only a half a dozen things that we could be doing. So we could just roll through some things that I've thought about doing or that I've seen happen in the world and I could pin it on you and go, shame on you, you wicked lot. Look at you. Look in the mirror of your soul and ask yourself, am I really a child of God? Well, you want to know? Where is that? That's not in Paul's writing. Nowhere in Paul's writing, nowhere in John's writing, nowhere in Peter's writing, nowhere in James' writing does any, do any of the apostles indict the elect of God to change something in their life that they may be right with God. Nothing. But yet that is the culture we live in. We don't do that to our children. You didn't make your bed this morning. I disown you. You didn't get a good grade on your English exam. You're no son of mine. What's wrong with you? You can't brush your teeth? Get out of my house. <laughs> really? But yet we think that's how the Lord is. And then we say, no, 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 no. It's not like that. It's all grace. It's everything's good. Oh, you know, this, is, this is good. God loves me. Yes, I know that. But indeed, down we're going, he does not. I've got to change some things. That's not love. That's not love that cast away fear. That's not intimacy. That's not hope. That's not assurance. And that surely isn't what God gives us when he grants us faith and a changed mind. Beloved, I don't know how many more years God will allow me to teach his word. But I can promise you this. Most Sundays I'm climbing out of potholes. I used to think that my pastor's and those above me. And you have to understand, I didn't really have a pastor until I was 17. Okay? And that was short-lived. And I went to college at 18, and then that was the, sort of the end of that. And I saw campus ministries, and that was sort of the end of that. Then I got married, and then we tried to find a biblical congregation, and there's a lot there. There's a lot of history there. It doesn't matter. My history's not important. But I can tell you that I used to look at men who preached and men who stood in pulpits and men who always had that right theological answer. And then if they were, if they were invested in the languages, it was like, oh. oh, man. I remember thinking one day when I was listening to my pastor in high school preach, I thought, you know, I wonder if there's a, you know, a door up there and he just floats down out of heaven on Sundays. Open your Bibles to John 3. The Lord giveth all that he hath giveth. Okay, that's a fortune cookie. Be careful of people who pray in the King James. Okay. And that's the way I looked at him. I knew that wasn't right, but I'm saying I looked at him like he just sort of stepped. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't Jesus, but he was just sort of hanging out in the waiting room. And he came down, and he preached, and he prayed, and then he went away. 
<laughs> until next Sunday. And this man was perfect. And then I started hanging out with him in his office. And he liked to play pinball. I'm going, that's satanic. <laughs> you know. Oh, you, you actually do speak English. <laughs> See, the, we have this false sense of glory with each other when the glory belongs to Christ. We have this false sense of glory with people who have taught us certain doctrinal things that have really settled our soul. And our emotions are always at work. There's nothing that you've ever thought, said, or done that wasn't a response or at least fettered to some type of emotion. Because it's impossible. It's impossible. Now we may find it, we may discover it, but what brought us to this discovery is being able to listen and see ourselves and test the emotions. But that's just the things that we see. Imagine what Paul is going through, knowing that there's trouble in Ephesus with people who have yet to realize they're in a pothole and they're not doing what needs to be done and they're swerving from the love of God because they want to somehow apply a burden to the body of Christ that the Bible itself does not apply. And how do they do it? By using the Old Testament. By using the prophets and the law. And Paul will tell us in, in Romans and in Galatians and other places that, that Jesus Christ is the terminus of the law. That's what he says. Terminus. The last stop. The fulfillment. The absolute end of it all. Law's over. The law's satisfied. And we're no longer held to its consequences. But we can learn. We can learn. We can learn what is good and pleasing. But when we do what is good and pleasing, it doesn't change our status before our Father. And Paul wasn't upset about it. Paul wasn't mad at Timothy. Paul wasn't mad with these knuckleheads. Alexander. Hymenius. He wasn't mad. Upset, possibly. But what was his intentions? What were Paul's intentions here? I mean, let's, let's read this for a second. Let's, let's just read the first 11 verses and listen to the timbre in which Paul speaks. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So let's stop there for a second. What, what's, that, what's that message? Is that a message of frustration? Is that a message of anger? Is that a message of power pushing, power play? Listen to me, by God, I'm the apostle. No, that's not what he's saying. My goodness. By the command of Christ. Jesus. And of God our Savior. And of Christ Jesus our hope. So he's setting the tone already for this young man. It's a tone of love and affection. It's a tone of intimacy. Let's continue. To Timothy. My true child in the faith. To Timothy, the young guy that I hope gets it. To Timothy, the guy that I wish could grow up quicker. To Timothy, had you just stayed there, this wouldn't have happened. No. My true child, my beloved son, my dear protege. 
it's a term of endearment. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of love and hope that he has in Christ by the command of God. And now the same love and hope that he knows all the fullness of everything that the gospel entails and can preach it and write it. Yet his entire intention is to do what? Is to put forth love as not only the centerpiece of the gospel, but also the aftermath of the gospel. And I use that term purposefully. Gospel regeneration, the aftermath of that is unified love. Not in a, any type of purity except the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that's Paul's intentions. The next thing we see, starting in verse 3, is Paul's exhortation. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different types of teachings. Not to devote themselves to myths and genealogies and, because these promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge. So here's... Another part of his intention. The aim of our charge is love. Love for who? Love for Alexander. Love for Hymenaeus. Love for all the people who have fallen in their rut and started to consider and contemplate their use of the law and what it entailed for the application of the local church. Paul's intention is we need to correct this stuff and get it out of their minds and get it out of their mouths so that because we love them. Did he condemn them? No. Did he reprobate them? He has no authority to do such things. Paul never reprobated anybody. He didn't reprobate. There's no, there's no explanation of that. Even in Galatians chapter 1, Paul didn't reprobate it. Learn to, learn to listen to genres. Learn to listen to construction of syntax. And if you need help with that, I will help you. Paul's intention was love. The aim of our charge is love. The love that issues from a pure heart. Love that comes from a pure heart. Love that comes... From a good conscience. Love that comes from a sincere faith. Are these battle words or are these loving words? And then six, as a way of passion and compassion and love and care to prove his intention. He says, there's some folks, <laughs> Timothy. There are some folks who have swerved from these truths. There's some folks who have swerved from the love of God. There's some folks who have gone away into all this silly discussion and talk. And they ought to be serving. And they ought to be quiet. And they ought to be intimate. Sometimes we hear people say, well, I love the Lord. And when we hear people say that, we should say, yeah, how? How do you love him? Well, I just, I just do. That's ridiculous. I mean, can I walk up to a person on the street and say, Hey, stranger, I love you. And just walk away? It might make them feel good, but have I loved them? No. Have I loved them? They're hungry. 
I know you're starving. I love you. See you later. You dying of thirst? I love you. You're naked and cold? Look at my new jacket. You should get you one. I love you. No, that's not love. Love is never any type of affection. Because the difference between love and idolatry is that idolatry serves us. Love serves. And sometimes we don't really love one another. We just idolize each other. We love the idea of one another. We love the presence of each other because of what it does for us. So if we really love, we do. We act. And I will stand before God and know that this is correct because His Word teaches it. The Holy Spirit does not lie. God cannot lie. And so the Bible teaches us that love is and only and always will be what we do. You might say, well, how am I supposed to love? I don't know. It depends on who you are. It depends on your gifts. And it depends on the circumstances in which you're in. It depends on what God has called you to and who God has called you to serve. At the minimum, I'll just give you an example. We should be actively praying for one another. That's the greatest love we could give. And then also, we should be extremely patient with one another because our Father loves us and is patient with us. If we could learn those two things and then put them into practice, we would go a long way. But that's not what most people think love. I've got to speak the truth in love. Well, you know, that's code for the contemporary, keep it real. I'm going to tell it like it is. That's not love. That's wicked. When I tell it like it is, I'm being wicked. When I keep it real, I'm wanting to be heard. I'm not wanting to help. And there's something in our flesh that when we disallow the instructions of love found in the New Testament, we really become uber selfish. We become so myopic in the intention of the gospel to give glory to the Father that we saw walk around and say, well, we love the Lord Jesus. Why? Everybody can answer that. Because he first loved me. He gave himself for me. I'm an instrument of his mercy. I'm an object of his grace. I, 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 I've been loved eternally by my Father. Oh, woe is me such a sinner. Oh, woe is me such a sinner. Should we sin that grace may, be, may abound? No, absolutely not. And because we don't understand this, we, we, we misunderstand forgiveness all the way around. Forgiveness is granted. That intimacy may be restored. You open our hands and say, hey, we're right here. Come into my life. And I'll love you. That's what forgiveness does. It's not an eraser. We can't erase. I can't erase. I mean, we might have a hard time remembering all the fun times we had last week. But I promise you we could sit down and, 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 and just in a quick second or less give a short list of the things that bothered us. So when we say we love the Lord, the question is not why, but the question is how. And the, the how is answered this way. We hear that which he instructs us to do, and it is not a burden. 
Why is it not a burden? Because when I fail at it, and I'm going to, um, I'm not condemned. Why? Because God loves me. And he will not condemn me. But what about? But what about? You want to talk about discipline? It's another subject. But it's related to love, isn't it? When God disciplines in us, when he lets us walk into the pothole. Well, if God loved me, why did I walk, fall in this pothole? Because he loves you. He wants to show you that where you're going leads you to where you are. <laughs> That's what a parent does. Well, your child's out there playing with a propane tank and a shotgun and some tannerite. He's turning the gas on and he's watching it go poof, poof. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that funny? It's the only son I got. I hope he survives. I mean, no. You say, hey, knucklehead, put that down. Put that away. That's ridiculous. You, you protect them because you love them. And you do so by guiding them to the right place, showing them the right way, teaching them the fact that this is used for that and this is used for that. And this is dangerous when you do that. And sometimes, if necessary, where did you learn that? I saw it on YouTube. Well, those people are dumb. Don't do as YouTube does. Do what's right. You see, and the analogy could go on for days. The aim in our charge is love. Paul's exhortation is to love from a pure heart. A pure heart loves purely. So a pure heart loves the Lord Jesus Christ by loving and serving the church. So you don't love Jesus by, by just saying you love Jesus. You don't love Jesus by feeling cool when we sing, all I have is Christ, or, you know, come thou found, or whatever it means. You know, you may feel some cool stuff, but some of us get that same feeling from a roller coaster. Some of us get that same feeling just sitting outside and looking at the sky. Solving a word puzzle. <laughs> it's like crack. Huh. Got 40 seconds. Wordle. You know. We get these feelings and, and we, we confuse them with love. Love is, a, is an act. It's a willful act. So a, a heart that is pure, a pure heart is a heart that loves willfully. We love the Lord Jesus, we love him willfully. How do we do it? How do we love you, Lord? By under the least of these, you do. Well, I don't want to serve him because he doesn't understand things the way he ought to. This guy doesn't even say he's in the faith. He can't even tell me his testimony. So? So? What's that got to do with anything? Yes, our first priorities is our, are our homes, and then our family of faith, and then our world. First to our local communities. But let's not sit here guilty. No matter how much we're doing, we're not doing what's required in perfection. So we have to, by faith, live in love, right? We live, love, and learn. Woohoo! there's a book. By faith, because... God loves us. And we live by faith, knowing that Jesus Christ loved perfectly His enemies, and loved perfectly the Father, and loved perfectly His people. 
Well, how, did, how does Jesus love his people? He gave his life for them. He didn't give his life for his enemies. Did you catch it? We were his enemies. By nature. Did he give his life for the reprobate? No, he did not. But until we wake up and become God himself, that's none of our business. That there are paragraphs written on reprobation and its signs expresses a great hubris in the human mind to know God. Hubris meaning arrogance. Haughtiness. Paul's exhortation is a pure heart of love does love. And it should love. And when it doesn't love, it's only pure because Christ is our purity, see. See, some people don't like, they think, you're mincing words. No, I'm expressing the context of the Bible in its entirety. A good conscience. A good conscience knows and goes to sleep without worrying that its love is in full effect and that it's correct. Well, I did today what I did because I, it was out of love. And I loved by serving someone who doesn't deserve my love. I loved by desiring that person to be whole and pure and joyful. Could you imagine waking up at 3 o'clock this morning with a bunch of racket going on in your, in your, in your house and, and you think, was well, that a child? Is that an animal? What's going on? You walk in there and there's this slick dude in a mask and he's rifling through all your stuff and he's stealing some things. I mean, what's your first response? It's like when we walked in this morning and the back door was not the back door, but the door to the staircase was open and Bob was standing there. You know Bob. Our Wing Chun target. And Jack and I were like, whoa, there's somebody in here. Oh, nope, it's Bob. You know. We were startled. And then we loved Bob. We left him alone. But imagine seeing this burglar in your house and instead of apprehending him, startling him, injuring him, Calling the authorities, just say, hey, 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 buddy, put that down, put that down. I'll give you all that stuff, but first let's sit down and have a meal. What you want? Three o'clock in the morning. Filet mignon. Well, let me, I don't have any, but I got hamburger. Well, that'll work. So let's just start cooking. And I mean, isn't that silly? That's ridiculous. I mean, man, if somebody told you that story, you'd be like, you are the biggest fool that has ever lived. But yet, that's exactly what the gospel requires of us. Not for burglars. But, beloved, I think sometimes in the body of Christ, we treat burglars better than we do each other. And then we want to accuse each other of being burglars when we're not. You see the point? It's hard. I know it's hard. Oh, my goodness. I, I stopped journaling last year just so there wasn't a record of all that. I mean, I went through some stuff. Some of you did too. I mean, this COVID's been crazy. It's, it's brought us to a lot of different things that we've never experienced emotionally and psychologically. I've never had a, over 100 people I know die in 18 months. I've never lost six relatives in a 12-month period. It doesn't make sense. And then not only that, those that 
passed away from COVID, we've lost a lot of good friends through the times um, because we didn't agree with their politics, didn't agree with their science, didn't agree with their faith, didn't agree with the temperature of the sun or the fact that the earth was round or flat. You think I'm joking. Somebody said something to me about a flat earth, and I just, like the comedian I am, said something funny, and then I insulted them, and they cut me out. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. No, you're not. Okay, I'm not. <laughs> I just, and what do you do? And, and you would have ever thought that something that seemingly trivial would be that important, but it is. And so love is careful. It may be ridiculous. Our children may think that there's a spaghetti monster in their closet eating their shoes, and we know that's ridiculous, but to belittle their fears, it's not love. To be angry because we had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, it wasn't a burglar, it was a child standing there with all the knives and forks trying to save itself. Uh, I'm going to get those knives, you see? But what do we do? We don't belittle their fears. Do you have memories from childhood where someone belittled your fears? I do. That's just dumb, James. That's just stupid. Because you know why? That's what parents do when they're woke up in the middle of the night. My second daughter was good at just being horrified and standing in, a, in an inconspicuous corner with her hair in front of her face. So I'd know that she was up because I could feel it. You know what I mean? And then I'd walk out going, what's going on? Because <gasps> I've, you know, I've watched my fair share of horror movies and that's a scene right out of it. There's this child with long black hair standing in front of me. Ah! Sorry, Daddy, I was scared. I mean, you know, you might say some things about how dumb that child is or something in that moment. Or fall off the railing of the stairs and skin your arms up or whatever it might be. You know, you, there's no telling what you might do. And so we, we do that. And a lot of things can change. But the charge is a good conscience. Knowing that even if it seems dumb to the world around me, when I love, I go to bed knowing that I did the right thing. I go to bed knowing that I did the right thing because God's instructions to me were to do these things and to, and to care about the other person and their intimacy with the people around them. When you are married and when your spouse or when you come to faith and your spouse refuses the gospel, you do not have warrant to divorce them. You cannot, under the instructions of the gospel, divorce them. But if they leave you, Paul says what? Let them go. Let them go. You're free. But what else does he say? It's the 1 Corinthians 7. I believe. He says that believing spouse should love them, should serve them, should be kind, should be gentle, should not pound them and hound them about the gospel, about the faith and all this stuff because God's promises are greater than our logic and our reason about how we should deal with these circumstances. And Paul even supposes a hypothetical. Maybe, just maybe, God will use you in your love and submission to Christ by loving and submitting to them. He may, through you, bring them the gospel. And if what is commanded in marriage 
which is temporary, is overly commanded to the church, which is eternal. And now we all have eight on our guilty scale. <laughs> I was feeling pretty cool and free in the Lord, and now I'm guilty. You see? See, you have, you have your fear and greed index for you stock hodlers. You watch that every day. Free and guilt index. That's where we are. We need to stay in the freedom. How do we do it? Listening. Good conscience. Loving a good conscience. And then a sincere faith. Sincere faith. We've already talked about this from a theological point of view. A sincere faith disavows a false gospel, okay? But sometimes the false gospel can come along in such a way, according to Paul's second letter, that it creates a little bit of an interest. Well, that sounds reasonable. That sounds logical. That's a fairly decent inference from what I can understand. But when it contradicts the very fabric of what is clearly taught, then we are to together walk in love and unity to work it out. You know the safest place for you to exercise your theological notions? Amongst God's people. Because the ones who are mature are able to go, I hear what you're saying. Let's, let's have some meetings about it. Let's talk about these things. Let's, let's walk together. That is the heart of Jesus. But what we do in our flesh is we, just like we can pick out the negative things, we swerve from these. We can pick out the negative things in our life. We could make a list. We could write books about the negative things. We'd have to think about what was good about yesterday. I know what was good about yesterday. The negative thing didn't happen. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's always negative with our flesh, isn't it? We can come to this to this thing and, and start looking and, and, and beloved that's what we do we, we line up so many harsh responses to stuff that we swerve away from love altogether and we think well this is biblical because you know what Jesus said in Matthew you brood of vipers you snakes yeah, I'm Batman I mean you know this, this kind of stuff. What did he say, what did he say to, to, the, to, the, to the Pharisees in and and, 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 and John chapter 4? Moses wrote of me. He did, right? And you couldn't see if it stepped in your face. This is Jesus' sentiment. You don't know God and you don't belong to God. Now how in the world can Jesus say that stuff because he is God and he knows who his own are yet he indicted the entirety of the Pharisees but he saved many of them he granted many of them redemption he granted them faith who Paul who else Nicodemus who else I mean you look at it. I mean, they're, they're there. So just because he was a Pharisee, he's reprobate. That's baloney. You see, that's not the And I'm not God, so I can't talk to people that way. <laughs> I can never talk to people that way. I can never 
ever talk to people that way. Because when I do, I am being, I am acting, I am the hypocrite trying to be God. Every single time. And some of us go, well, I haven't done that. Yeah, we have. We might not have acted in a lot, but we thought it, you know. So let's remember that it is only by God's loving mercy and the perfection of Jesus Christ credited to us before the Father that we even stand without condemnation. Oh, what a loving God. What a loving God. So we swerve from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. While we argue that we have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith in our hatred and unloving actions of separation, I've been thinking about this for a while, for years and years and years, but more so in the last three months than I've thought about it in my entire life combined. Pretty much every few hours it's in my mind. Is that the world looks at Christianity generally, and I use that term loosely, the the world looks at Christian religion and sees it as a hateful religion of dissension separation, and false purity. And that's the way it is. God has ordained that. Okay. But is it true of the true church? Sometimes. But yet the gospel, in Paul's writing, even to the Galatians, is all about reconciling. According to the promises of God, not according to to the proclivities of any particular person or to the desire of any particular people groups or to the passion of any particular uh, uh, person or people groups. No. Paul's exhortation is that we are to love from a pure heart that is pure because of the gospel, that we are to sit in Freedom, not worrying and guilt and fear, knowing with a good conscience that we are in the love of God as we are also loving others. And that a sincere faith that disavows falsehoods but doesn't destroy lives in the process. Beloved, the world is all about it. Flat earth, you're not my friend anymore. You see? Really? Oh, you don't like... Joe Biden, you're not my friend anymore. I mean, you know, these are the things that I've been told. Ah, you didn't, you didn't vote for that referendum? I hate you. You asked me a question about what I meant? Get out of my face. That's where it's at. Hey, I'm sorry, what was that? You hate me. No, I just didn't understand you. Don't lie to me. This is a real conversation I had with somebody. I didn't understand what they said. And because I asked them to repeat themselves, they thought I was being pushy. And I'm like, I better back up from this guy before he shoots me. And those are extreme examples, but friends, I'm telling you, this is what's going on. Our little squirrely heads. We're triggered. We're upset when we should be calm. God is not looking for us to be his hero. So if there's one opportunity every week for us to be at peace, let it be amongst each other. Even when there is dissension, our aim and the charge is for unity. According 
to the instructions of Paul, not the instructions of James Tippins. Don't take what I say as truth. If you haven't, in the context of the letter I'm speaking from, the testament I'm speaking from, and the whole of the 66 that I'm speaking from. So Paul's instruction then says some things, right? He says these people are swerving from love. And in doing so, they were already swerving from love by putting burdens on people in such a way. Now, what's the difference in a burden and an instruction? Can an instruction be burdensome? Yes. If you do not love one another like you are supposed to love one another, I am going to make it hard for you. That's a burden. If you really love the Lord, and if you're really born again, then you'll love each other the way you're supposed to. That's a burden. And the Bible doesn't give us that. The Bible says, because you are the beloved of God, love one another. Because you are the beloved of God, love your enemies. Because you are beloved of God, please, for your own joy and your conscience and your fruitfulness in this world, be compassionate. Be patient. Long-suffering and patience. Why? Because we're stewards of grace. So we, in our, in, in our finite wisdom, in our potholes, are supposed to be compassionate and patient with everybody. Thank God I'm not going to be judged by that measure. Thank the Lord for the perfection of Christ. I cannot even empathize. And I've done it. I've tried. I've put myself in it. I can't sit there and think about what Christ must have been thinking. Because every time I think about what Christ must have been thinking, I'm sinful. And I'm also sinful in my theatrical imagination of how Christ would respond. Because I know if I were in his shoes, being the sovereign God of the cosmos, how I would respond. And thank God he's not like me, or he wouldn't be God. So Paul's instruction, he says, we know that the law is good. The law has a purpose. It is to convict. It is to bring down justice. It is to show sin. It is to show righteousness. It is to express the, 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 the truth of who God is and what he must do against all unrighteousness, and we are all in that number, except that some of us eternally have been purposed to be called out of that number, you see. Electing grace. Saving grace. And there is no other kind when it comes from God. So Paul's instruction says, you know, here are all these people. And actually in verses 9 and 10, he comes with a list of things that literally touch on every one of the Ten Commandments. Every one of them. And that's not what we're supposed to get from that. It's just an expression. He's reminding Timothy of these things, just like in the rich young ruler in the discussion he had there. You, know, you don't have to give exhaustive discussion on stuff in order to be referring to something exhaustively. But... He's saying there is people who violate all this stuff. And that's why the law was written, to make them guilty. 
to show them death, to bring forth righteousness, not in their obedience, but in the justice that served for the violation of the holiness of God. And then he says something else. And whatever else is, listen to this, and we're going to have to go into next week with some of this right here, but whatever else is contrary. Now, what does the word contrary mean? It means to be against or not going with. A contrary spirit is an antichrist spirit. It's often uh, a spirit that comes from suspicion and superiority. Humbly. <laughs> you see? That's what we do, isn't it? We've got a little bit of knowledge. We know we know what we're talking about. We know we've made the right judgments. And instead of approaching anything in any humble way, we are thanking God that we have the truth and that we're living the truth, that we're not like Billy Bob back there with no arms and legs who can't even get out of the closet. It's a, it's a punching dummy for those of you who go, what's going on? It's from boxing. And I'm not like that. Thank you, God. I'm just being humble. Thank you, God. If it weren't for your grace, I'd be like that. Those are the examples Jesus gives of those who are condemned. And so I could logically bring a charge and say, Oh, those are reprobates who said that's not that. That's not what that means. But that is not in accordance with the gospel. It's contrary to sound teaching. So sound teaching can be contrary to the truth of the gospel, the person of Christ, and what he accomplished for his people, who he is and what he did. I've been saying that for 20 years in that way. I love the number of people who also say those things. It's not new. It's the truth. The good news of Jesus Christ in redemption is who he is and what he accomplished for his people. In a nutshell. And there's a whole lot of deep nutshells in that. There's a whole lot of depth in that small little walnut. We could just glory in it forever. And we will one day, face to face. So we look at this stuff now and we say, well, what is Paul getting to? Whatever else is contrary. What's the context of this particular two or three sentences? He's saying that people's actions and lifestyle and choices and words are contrary to the proper teaching of the gospel. So no, the instructions of the New Testament are not the gospel of Christ, but they are the gospel of Christ. You see what I'm saying there? It is good news, but it is not the good news in that context. And people like to argue that. But the Bible calls all the word of God the gospel. The judgment of God is good news. The instructions of the New Testament is good news. But we have gotten it in our way of talking, our vernacular, of saying that gospel only relates to the death of Jesus. Well, many times in the New Testament it's referring to that. But also, here Paul is saying, what? In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. In accordance with the good report of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So we have this good report. This is the gospel of salvation. And there's also a gospel of instruction. 
The good news of instruction. The good news of our joy. The good news of our good conscience. The good news of loving one another as God has loved us. And this is what the New Testament is all about. It's all about correcting error in the truth. False theology with right theology. And false living with right living. And these two are not conflated. So if we have the truth but we do not have love, what does the Bible say? We're worthless. If we're defending the truth against false teaching, but we're not seeking to love these people and to restore them in the simplicity of them repenting from their thoughts and words and loving one another through service, then we're not loving and we're worthless. The same way as if we're just a bunch of loving servants and we just love everybody to death and there's not a homeless, naked, hungry person on the block because we've provided for all their needs but we don't have the truth of the gospel, we're also worthless. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate being told that I'm worthless. (laughs) Another separation. That's not the intention of the New Testament, is it? The intention of the New Testament is to inspire us to know that God has loved us in such a way to redeem us when we don't deserve it, nor could we ever accomplish it in our own. And in like manner, out of that flows a desire to live like Christ. And when that desire wanes, what is the promises of God? Does it wane? Yes, it wanes. Beloved, you're your faith is going to wane. So you've got to have a refresher. I mean, I picked up 3,000 pounds last Saturday. Moving something I shouldn't have moved by myself when I have many of you strong brothers who could have helped me. Don't look at me like that. I know, because my wife's already given me the what for. And then Sunday, a few of us uh, moved 400 pounds up my stairs. And uh, so Monday, I could barely move. I didn't have the energy. I only ate like 1,600 calories Monday, and I was dragging it out. So Tuesday, I was dragging and dragging. So Thursday, I ate like 7,000 calories. Ah, I feel good now. That's what it was. I was out of fuel, you see. I eat a lot, four or 5,000 calories a day sometimes. I eat a lot because I metabolize things constantly. It's not healthy. <laughs> Depends on what I eat. The point I'm making is is that our spiritual lives are the same way. We get depleted in our focus. We get depleted in our power. We get depleted and our flesh begins to rise up and take over. You know what happened to me on Wednesday? I could barely go. So I'm just like, after lunch I slept and I woke up and I slept, drank coffee. I slept and I couldn't. I was like, am I dying of cancer all of a sudden? That's what I did. I started to get on Mayo Clinic. Yeah, I got cancer of the brain, cancer of the feet, cancer of the toes. Maybe I've got long COVID, didn't know I even had COVID. I mean, you know, I just, <laughs> just ah, what's going on? Shut this down and go outside and take a walk. We are going to become frail in our spiritual lives unless we eat. And we eat the word by reading the Bible. We are refreshed by being together. We are refreshed by helping one another. One of the greatest remedies of, 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 of pain and suffering overwhelming us is to try to go help others who are in pain and suffering. And this cycle of God's promises that if we are stay together in the word and we learn and we're kind and tender and patient with one another, we will all come out more intimate. 
And we'll all come out worshiping and thanking God more and more and more. And this is where we'll be next week. Look at this. He says, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And then what's the very next thing out of, this is a segue into this. This is Paul's application. Paul says, I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength. That's what it is. We see the instruction and we're worn down. We see the instruction and we're going, I just can't. And then what do we do? We listen to other people trying to find hope, trying to find courage, trying to find boldness, trying to find energy, trying to find strength. And if we're not careful, we'll end up with all these different ideas or worse, as some of us were talking about this week, we'll end up in an echo chamber that just continues to give us the same information that's wrong over and over again. Or the same information that's so slim in the fullness of it, it's so wanting that we're starving to death. Beloved, we can't starve to death. The full counsel of the gospel, the full counsel of the word of God, the full counsel of God's promises are ours. Christ is ours. Christ is ours. Paul is ours. This is for us. It wasn't to us, but it's for us. So here he says, thank you. I thank him who gives me strength. Why would Paul need strength? Because he's the apostle over a thousand churches. (laughs) In a time where it took months and months, if not a year, to get a letter out. By the time you heard of bad things happening, half the people were dead already. You weren't rescuing anybody, you are just cleaning up. In a time where to be gentle and to be kind and to be loving to those who weren't exactly like you was mocked. Or called wicked. And beloved, self-righteous, when we are in our self-righteous mindset, and we all have them. Don't know what yours is. I know where mine sits sometimes. And I go, wow, that's really self-righteous of you to think that way. As if you are anybody. But when we're in that self-righteous mindset, what we do is we inadvertently find ourselves in weakness. And we're destroying other people. We're destroying our joy. And Paul... No longer being bold and self-righteous. No longer saying, I know what I know and you better listen to me. No longer did he do that. He never even said that. Even when he usurped, and when, even when he came against those people who usurped his authority as an apostle, he was, he was thanking God. I'm just a mouth, he'd say. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, the same Christ Jesus who commanded him as an apostle, the same Christ Jesus who is his hope, the same Christ Jesus who's given grace, mercy, and peace, the same Christ Jesus who's loved him before he was, the same Christ Jesus in whom he trusts, who gave himself for Paul and for you, beloved. The same Christ Jesus that judged him faithful. Why was Paul faithful? Because God judged him faithful. And there was mourning. And there was evening. And God said it was good. And then God said, and then God said it was good. God declared Paul good. 
And God declared Paul faithful. And then God orchestrated even in the minute details of his travel and his food and his clothing. His purposes in bringing Paul to where he needed Paul to be. So that God's purposes would get the gospel to you and to me. But he never, ever, ever took credit for any of it. He says he received mercy. Look at verse. Let's just keep reading there and then we'll pray. I thank him, verse 12, who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all and full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. I've already told you. That in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This doxology, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your amazing grace, for your love that surpasses all the love that we might think we understand. Lord, help us to be patient and forgiving and loving. Help us to recognize when we're being hostile. Help us to recognize when we're being persuaded by our, by our own fears and insecurities, by our own prejudices. Father, help us to see these things that we may trust in Christ by the faith that you have granted us that we are at peace with you no matter how bad or how good we do that we might be motivated to live according to the call. And Father, teach us to be the voice of truth in the midst of many thoughts and many ideas and many philosophies and many so-called gospels. But help us to do it in a way that trusts in your sovereignty, knowing that nothing we do is going to change anyone, but yet only you and only you will only you can and only you will change the hearts of your people. So we trust in you. And Father, continue to give us this joy as we worship through your table to remember what Christ has done for us in his death and in his, the shedding of his blood. And Father, keep us as we fellowship today around a meal. In Christ's name, amen.